Romans chapter 6. We are looking at a spot in Paul's letter to the Romans where the great apostle is actually explaining the very foundation of the Christian life. He's also correcting a misunderstanding about grace. I would say that if you don't understand what Paul is teaching here in these ten and a half verses in in Romans 6, you're either going to turn the grace of God into a license to sin, or you're not going to have footing for, for living the Christian life. This is the what you must understand, the very foundation of, of living as a believer. Because if you don't understand what God says happened to you in salvation, how will you then, then live in, in light of that? And the main doctrine that's revealed here in, in these passages that we're working through in, in Romans is what theologi- uh, theologians call our union with, with Christ. Believers are in Him. We are in Christ, and we are so inextricably linked that God says what happened to Jesus is accounted to us as, as His followers, as people in Him or in Christ. And This passage began as a ground for our assurance, you might recall, and, and it will end by turning to, to some commands, which we'll get a peek at today. But But in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul moves from what he's been teaching us in chapter 5, which has been all about the blessings of justification that that we have in in Jesus Christ. And starting in chapter 5 all the way through chapter chapter 8, this section deals with the promises and the privileges that we have because we've been declared righteous in in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, Paul told us, it's where he began, that We have peace and grace and and hope with God and eternal life, which Christ, the last Adam, brings. And having just finished that section, Paul's main concern there is that a believer has absolute assurance of this new standing, this change that has taken place because because of that that fact. And so he laid out the basis for that in in chapter 5. There were justified blessings, which he, he listed most in staccato type of fashion in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. And then then he turned to this great union, this new union that we have. You were once in Adam and you are now in Christ in verses 12 through 19. And at salvation, there was a a change that that, that took place. You're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You were once in Adam, you are now in in, in Christ. and as believers, we now have a new representative that, that we're associated with before God. And, and that's, that, that's the Lord Jesus, which, which he says all of that, that justification, all those blessings, that, trans, that, that transfer of unions, it, it all came to us by and because and through God's amazing and matchless and sovereign grace. It had nothing to do with you. It was, it was grace beginning to end all grace. And that's what Paul just got done explaining. And then that brought up a question then about grace and, and sin. How do we live in light of that, that grace, which the Apostle Paul deals with in chapter 6, verse 1. And then he answers that, that question in verses 2 through 10. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul will not allow his doctrine um, to be open to accusation. So he goes right at it. And he, he answers that question about sin and grace in, in four parts. And this is what we're working through. He, he says in verse 2, we, we can't continue to sin because we, we died in Christ. I mean, dead people can't be reigned over by sin. Its power has been, has been broken off. And then in verses 3 through 5, he explained that death is because of our union with Christ. We, we're united with Christ at conversion, which is the... The, the reference to baptism, and, and that union brings these theological realities of Jesus' death and, and Jesus' resurrection. And uh, then the section we're in right now, Paul explains the, those facts a little bit further. I mean, knowing these things. Knowing these things is the very foundation of Christian living, which is what we're, we'll continue to look at today. And then he'll wrap this whole section up with some commands, where he draws his conclusion in verse 11 and then 
continues with these exhortations in verses 12 through 13. He, he spends ten and a half verses explaining and two and a half verses applying, which should tell us something, maybe about ourselves. We're really that dense, no? We probably are. But it should tell us something about how we approach this passage and the Bible in, in general. I mean, one of the major reasons we have a hard time understanding a, a thick theological passage or a passage that has a lot of, of doctrine in it, a lot of theology in it, is because we apply ourselves too soon. We, we read ourselves into the passage when God's not focused on us at all in in a number of spots. I mean, we're not the primary emphasis in verses 3 through 10 of this, of this passage. Christ is. And one writer said, in fact, Paul is not interested in you at all at the moment, especially in the passage that we're in. I mean, it's all about the Lord. It's all about His death, His resurrection, His relationship to, to sin. And so, for example, you may read what Paul says about dying to sin, and you think, okay, I need to do that. I mean, Christ died to sin, so I need to die to sin. He's my, he's my, my great example. I, I, I need to cry, die to sin like Christ did, as if this is some kind of commandment. And when that's not what it says at all. It says Christ died to sin, and therefore you died in Him. Or you may read it with your experience in mind, and, and you think, I don't remember experiencing that. I mean, if I died to sin, I think I would have surely felt it. And beyond that, I see sin in my life at, at, at times. And so what Paul's talking about here must not apply to me. Paul's, Paul's not talking about you or, or, or me yet. Um, he's focused on Christ first, on doctrine first. And so, so you have to stop thinking about yourself in order to understand a passage like this. Paul's point is... What happened to Christ happened to us. So you have to understand what happened to Christ. I mean, he's forcing us to focus on, on theology, not experience. I mean, he's saying you have to put your feelings and your experience aside and, and focus on Jesus, what happened to him. Now, he doesn't want you to hold that posture forever, obviously. I mean, because uh, we're being told this so it can impact the way we live. We understand so that we might be able to, to, to do but it will, will help you if you remind yourself to look to Christ first so you don't get confused. Well, we'll get to the experience, verses 11 through 13, but right now it's all about the Lord, and you are in the densest part in, the, in our passage today about, about, about the Lord. In verses 6 through 11, Paul is going to focus on what we must understand about Christ's death and resurrection in order to get to the application, and it's the foundation for a... Christian's life. We, we said he gives us two certainties that you must know in order to successfully live a new life in, in Christ. He says we must know our old self was crucified, verses 6 through 7, which is what we covered last time, and we must know that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, verses 8 through, through 10, and He'll summarize it and bring it all together in, in, in verse 11. So we've lumped verse 11 into, into this section. I mean, these are two theological facts, and then God will call us to respond to them. Let, let's uh, look at what we learned last week as a running start for this week because you'll see how they, they tie together. The first certainty that we saw last week is that we must know that our old self was, was crucified, verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's our word, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has, he who has died is freed from sin. We said there are four parts to this verse. It's very easy to see. There's the fact of our death that, that's, that's declared. He gives, that, gives us that right out of the gate. Knowing this, what do we know, Paul? What's the fact that we're to know? That our old self was crucified with him. And then there's the purpose of our, our death explained. He, he then says it was in order that something would, would take place. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. And the result of that was so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. 
And then he explains why, why that can happen in, in verse 7. He tells us there's a fact that we should know. That our old man, who we were in Adam, that what he talked about in chapter 5, that person is gone. That person has been done away with. Paul says the old self, meaning all we were in Adam, was crucified with Christ. And we were not involved in the actual crucifixion physically. We, we were not there. He wants, us to, he wants to emphasize the, the event that, that, that took place with Christ. So he, so he uses this word crucified. And the apostle places, places the emphasis on the fact. Now remember, verses 3 through 5, he's all talking about the union. And these are the two doctrinal truths that, that you must grasp in order to understand a believer's death to sin. It's our union with Christ and the fact of his death. I mean, both of those two things are, are necessary. Both facts, knowing both of these facts is a key for Christian living going, going forward. I mean, Paul's not commanding us to kill our old man or to do anything to him. But as I said next, Paul explains the purpose for this, for this crucifixion, our old self being crucified with Christ. He says, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, in order that the body ruled by sin might be, might be deadened. Paul says the body ruled by sin loses its power over us when, when we died in Christ. That's the purpose for this theological death. It, it was to take away its, its power, the power that it once had. Paul doesn't say that the presence of sin has died. Paul doesn't say temptations to sin are gone. He says the man or the person that we were in Adam has been crucified. And all that you were in him has died, meaning the, the, the reign, the rule, the, 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 the effect of sin in, in Adam to a certain degree. Paul doesn't mean that a Christian cannot sin, but that sin cannot rule a Christian's life like it did when we were in Adam. And the result of that death or our death in Christ was sin's grip was broken. Look at how he ends verse 6. In order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. He completes the thought there. All of these facts is so we would not be captives to sin. There's a death. That death drains out the power, removes the power, so that we wouldn't be bound or enslaved. That's the result of, of our old man's death. It's so power could be re removed, so we would no longer be enslaved. We are now free not to sin. Whereas before, we were bound by sin. We had no freedom. Think of J.R. Tolkien's uh, ring, the reign of power, how it exercises power. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. In fact, we didn't even want to break free from that slavery. John three nineteen. This is the judgment that light has come into the world... And men love the darkness rather than the light. Now, let me repeat that to you. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Who's the light that's come into the world? Jesus. And men love the darkness rather than the light, rather than Jesus. Why? For their deeds were, were evil. We were slaves to sin. We didn't even want to break free from that. Which is why... We just sang in John Newton's song, song and why he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A pastor at the church in London asked the congregation, um, in prayer time, do, do you see yourself as a wretch? He said, unless you do, you'll, you'll not be able to truly grasp what you need in salvation and why only Christ can provide that, that to you. And then in verse 7, he provides the explanation for this result. How slavery broken? Well, for he who has died is freed from sin. He brings us back to this death. Why are you no longer a slave of sin? Why has sin lost its power over you now that you died in Christ? Because whoever has died is freed from his former master. And as a believer, you no longer have to answer for, for sin because of this death. But the passage doesn't end there. I mean, Christianity is not a religion related to death. It's a living relationship in life. And so Paul gives us a second certainty 
here that you must know in order to successfully live a new life in Christ. Both of these together, the foundation, the theological foundation for living a Christian life. We must know also that we're alive to God in Him. Look, if you would, at verse 8. This has four parts as, as well. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Now you're in the thick of the theology. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but but alive to God. Verse 8 is the transition from the last fact they just gave us to, to a new one. And it establishes a premise. Then the new fact is given to us in verse 9, what you must know, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead. And then verse 10 is a further explanation of that proof. It starts with a little word for. And then verse 11 is finally the application, finally the exhortation in, in light of all that. Look, look if you would at verse 8. Let me... Just walk through these four parts with you, and it'll make sense. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. And you notice the phrase starts with, with, with now if, and, and he uses that as a springboard to, to his next point. It also establishes the premise for his argument. He says, now, if we have died... And we surely have. I just got done explaining that to you. That I just told you, you must know that. Now, if we have died, we believe we shall also. If this, then, then also that. I mean, if the first statement is true, and it is, we've died with Christ, then the second one must also be true. There's the premise. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. If you're crucified with Christ, then it necessitates a new life, a resurrected life, being attached to His resurrection in some way. And what must be true now is something to do with a new life. Now, now there are some who would say that the life that Paul's talking about here, because he, he, he clearly gives it in, in a future tense, is talking about heaven. It's the future resurrection. Notice it says... If we have died, we, then we shall also live in, in the future. Like, like if we died with Him in salvation, then we, we shall live in heaven whenever we, we die, which is, of course, correct. But that's not Paul's emphasis here at all, especially not in, in this part of, of Romans. I mean, he's concerned about living a new life right, right now. And you can be sure of that because of the commands that, 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 are, that are coming to, to, to live it out. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that's here on the earth so that you may obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. You present yourself to God alive right now before you get to heaven. And your members as instruments, living sacrifices, as he'll say in in chapter 12, he remembers his instruments of, of, of righteousness. I mean, no, Paul is, is concerned about living a new life right now. You can see that by, by the commands. I mean, death with Christ, therefore death to sin, is a necessity for, for living a new life. I mean, you can't have hope to have any kind of power over sin or to live a new life unless you've, the old power is taken away and a new one is granted. You can't stop sinning until you've died to its power. Some of you probably have tried that. It doesn't work. But if you died to sin, then new life has come. And if new life has come, then that will come out in, in your life. But notice that there's a, there's a call to believe this fact by faith. Look at verse 8. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we surely have, we believe that we shall also live with him. And he said back in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified. And now he says, knowing that, we believe something else. Because they both have the same basis, which is what happened to Jesus Christ. It's not something you feel. 
It's a theological fact. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a great illustration about this, this belief here, this, what, what is faith. And he basically says Paul's already given it to us back in Romans chapter 4. You remember back in Romans 4 where Paul is saying, uh, talking about Abraham's faith. Salvation has always been through faith. And he even proves that by going back to Abraham and going back to David. And he gives us an illustration of Abraham's faith. If you would, at Romans 4, 18 through, through 21. He says, in hope against hope. It's describing Abraham's faith. He believed. There's our word. In hope against hope, he believed. So that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he says God takes Abraham outside and says, look at the stars. And he said, so shall your seed be. Something that's in the future. It's in the future that your seed shall be like this. And he tells Abraham this when Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah was 90, right now in the present. And that's something impossible. But the Bible says, Abraham, not being weak in faith, considered not his own body now, now dead. Look at how verse, verse 20 says. Yet, in light of being 100 and Sarah being 90, yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And, and then faith is defined more specifically. What does it look like? Verse 21 and being fully assured that what God had promised would take place in the future, even though the present right now looked and felt differently, he, that's God, was also able to perform. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to, to do, which is faith. And the good doctor said that that is what you and I have to do here in, in Romans 6. I mean, Abraham felt nothing and experienced nothing not at that moment. He took God at his word about what was true. I mean, in fact, Abraham's feelings and experience were probably the opposite. And you may have feelings and experience with, with sin, and, and you think the opposite of what God says here about, about you as a believer, based on your experience. As we said last week, I mean, we would not know that we were even in Adam if the Bible had not told us that in, in, in his word. I mean... You weren't born feeling that you were in Adam. You wouldn't have known that you'd been baptized into Christ unless God told you that you were placed in union with Christ through, through, through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not something that, that you experience at the, at the moment. How do you know that happened? Well, because God told you it did. And, and now he says that you died to sin's reign. And it's a statement that God makes. And so you say, based upon God's word, I, I believe that, that I'll have new life in, in him. I'm no longer in Adam. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And now he says, believing that, we shall also live with him. We'll see in a few verses, this is not just positive thinking or, or name it, claim it. We're, we'll be called to align our lives with, with this truth in, in actions, but... But here, faith grasps the promise that God makes and holds on to it and believes it. And then the experience follows. Then I stop living the way that I used to. I stop obeying sin's voice. If you try to reverse that, you don't lay the theological groundwork first, then, then you're not going to have any, any ability to carry any of this out. But it all starts by believing through faith in God who tells me what he has done. And so what is this new fact? that I am to know. Well, look if you would at, at verse 9. Knowing, now if, I have, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing, there's our word again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. Here's the word knowing again, but this time it's about the resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified, knowing that Christ having been raised from, from, from the dead. 
This time it's about the resurrection of Jesus, which Paul informs us has some very unique qualities, which is what all this list is that comes up afterwards, which, which becomes ours as well, which is why it's important to pay attention to. Paul says we know something about Christ's death in, in light of the resurrection. Well, what do we know? Well, we know that Christ will never die again, which is different from every other death that we know about in, in, in the Bible. And more specifically, Paul says, we know that, that death is no longer master over him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. It's a further explanation to that never die again. Christ will never die again. Or, or death no longer is, has lordship over Christ. Now, that should bring up several questions that you have to answer. if You're paying attention to this verse. I mean, in, in what way do we know that Christ's death was different? And more importantly, I mean, what does this mean about sin or death being Lord over Christ or master over Christ? I mean, how is that even possible? Sin or death no longer being master over Christ means at one point death was master over Christ or lording over, over Christ. How's that possible? Well, first Paul means that Jesus' death was different because of the resurrection. He tells us that very, very plainly. And the important truth is so will ours be. I mean, when Jesus died and rose, it wasn't like any other human in history. Because it says he'll never die again. I mean, almost everyone uses Lazarus as an example here when explaining this, this passage, probably because of close proximity to Christ, the culminating miracle he did before he rose from, from the dead. And you know the story of the, the raising of Lazarus. He was resurrected, but then he died a second time, which is very different from Jesus. And he died a second time because sin still had power over him physically. I mean, sin's consequences were, were still operating in, in Lazarus's life and anyone else who has ever rose in the Bible. And the evidence of that is they died again. What's unique about the, 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 the death of Christ, resurrection, he never dies again. And that's the evidence. Not Jesus. When he rose, he completely triumphed over death. And he's never to die again. This is what Jesus said to John on the Isle of Patmos when John saw a vision of Christ, heard his voice, and he fell like a dead man. The Lord said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and the grave, or Hades. Keys means authority. Authority. He's the ruler over that. He's the conqueror of those things. I was dead, but I'm alive. I am the living one, and I'm alive forevermore. Death no longer has any power over me. It no longer is master over me. I have completely triumphed over death. I'll never be subjected to death anymore after the resurrection. And Christ's resurrection is what the Bible calls the first fruits inaugurates this, this new age. He'll bring others with him through the grave and out the other side. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. He says, For as in Adam all die, what we heard in chapter 5, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now that is applied to us. But each is in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. And after that, those who are Christ at, at his coming. I mean, and Christ's resurrection is the proof that sin is no longer Lord over him or has dominion over him, which, which is the second question. And he explains that in verse 10. Look if you would at verse 10 of, of Romans. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. What do you mean, Paul? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he, he lives to God. It's a further explanation. Notice that the, their little word for there. It tells us that Paul's explaining what he just got done saying. And boy, we need some explanation. 
death is no longer death no longer is master over him, master over Christ. Who can be master over Christ? How is that possible? Well, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Watch the shift there. The shift from death having dominion to this reference to sin. I know you're swimming around in the theological end, in, end of the pool, but, but stay with me. This is good. So how does death have dominion over Christ? And what is the relationship to dying to sin, which as Paul says is once for all, it's final? Well, the Bible says the sting of death is sin. The Bible shows that death and sin go together. They're linked. In fact, sin brings forth death, doesn't it? You have sin in the garden, and because of sin, then death comes. The, death, uh, the Bible says the sting of death is sin, meaning that sin is the reason that we die. It's the stinger or the sharp point that injects the poison that eventually kills us. Death overtakes us. Death overcomes us. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, which describes this. You know these passages. You hear them all the time at, at funerals. Again, this is applied to us. But when this perishable, that, that's us, will have put on the imperishable. And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the sting of death is sin. Sin's work produces death. And the power of sin is the law. What increases sin's power in our life is, is, is the law. Which is what Paul just got done saying at the end of chapter 5, wasn't it? This verse says Christ gives victory over both. Gives victory over the over the, the sting of, of death and over the, over the power of the law. How? Well, the answer is this glorious doctrine of substitution. And that's the answer to the question that, that you should have about sin no longer having mastery over Christ. I mean, Christ, who had no sin, placed himself under the law and therefore under the penalty of sin, and he faced its outcome, which is death. And while he was acting as the substitute, he voluntarily placed himself under the mastery of both of those, those things. MacArthur said this phrase that Christ died to sin has two meanings. He died to the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He met sin's legal demands for mankind who would trust in him. And he broke the power of sin over those who belong to God. He said this is perhaps the twin truth that believers both die to the penalty as well as the power of sin that Augustus Toplady had in mind, had in mind when, when he penned his great hymn, Rock of Ages. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, the penalty, and make me pure, the power of sin. That's what's available in Christ because of his crucifixion and because of his resurrection. I mean, it means that Christ placed himself in his work of substitution. He came as our substitute. He placed himself under the barbell of the law that we can never lift, and which is a weight that crushes every person, every, every man, woman, boy, and girl. But he didn't lift the weight, even though he could. He allowed it to bring him to the grave. And when it did, it exercised mastery over him. Not because it had to, but because he allowed it as our substitute. And he could have lifted the weight at any time. In fact, he demonstrated that when he went to the end of this temptation and was successful. Unlike us, unlike Adam. It was his first work. And he allowed sin to bring him unto death. He allowed sin to reign over him for, for a period of time as a substitute. And then he rose which is where the victory comes from. And that's what Paul is saying here. He conquered sin and death, proving that by, by the resurrection. What's proof? 
that he conquered sin and death, that, that sin and death no longer has, has any mastery over Christ. He's out from under it now. He conquered it. What's the proof of that? Well, he rose. And so now for us, because we're in him, we now live without the reigning power of sin or the fear of death. Death is a bee without a stinger. And now we have a new life in him and we're free from from those enemies. So you have to think of this concept of death having dominion over Christ in terms of substitution. Death has no dominion over God because God is without sin, of course. But even James says that God doesn't tempt any man with evil, nor can he be tempted. And you say, well, aha, contradiction in, in the Bible because the Bible says that Jesus was tempted. So is Jesus God or, or, or not? And the answer to that is the same, the doctrine of, of substitution. He was tempted. He allowed himself to be tempted. He came from glory to a sin-cursed earth. And the Spirit is the one that drove him in the wilderness to be tempted. He submitted to that temptation. And yet, he was tempted at all all points like us as our substitute. Yet, he was what? Without Without sin. sin. Exactly right. Because he's God. Which is why what he did at the baptism is so significant, where he steps forward. I am the substitute. The Father confirms that from heaven. Which is why it's so important that in the temptation... He was tempted like Adam and was victorious, proving that he was able. Then in the garden, he grasps the cup of death. And then at the cross, he drinks it down as your substitute, placing himself under the law, placing himself under sin, bringing him to death. And when he died, sin no longer has any mastery over him, not over Christ or over those in him. It has no dominion over Christ as the substitute. He ceases his work of substitution at the cross, in fact, which I'll show you in a minute. And sin has no dominion over those who are in union with him, which is you, if you're a believer. Notice what it says. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, it's a particular kind of death. What about his death? He died to sin once for all. It doesn't mean once for all, human beings. It means once for all, at a moment in time. He died once. He's never to die again. And then he rose. That's what's different about his death. And the resurrection is proof of that. He died once for all and he's never to face it again. But that's not all the verse says. There's more proof. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. But it it, it means a contrast is coming. There's something on the other side of Christ being the substitute in death. It says, but the life he now lives. And it's a life to God that he lives. That should bring up some additional questions. What does that mean? The life that he now lives, he, he lives to God. Well, it means many things. But it has to do with his new work. After the resurrection. Now remember, keep your focus on Christ. This is not about you right now. It has nothing to do with you yet. He's telling us about our Savior's work. How does the work of Christ lay the foundation for you in the way in which you live and the removal of the power and the giving of a new, uh, of a new power? Paul is saying now that Jesus is done with his substitutionary work on the cross of death... Then he begins his new work of advocacy in the resurrection. Look at verse 10 again. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's done. It's over. But the life that he lives, he he lives to God. It it says the, the life that he lives. And we sing that, don't we? He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. It says the life that he lives. Where is he living right now? We believe in the the bodily resurrection of the Lord. Where is Christ living right now? Heaven, right? And now that he lives, that's in the resurrection, he lives to God. That means to the glory of God in general, but there's a specific way in which he lives to God. I mean, what is he doing in heaven right now? He lives and he's in heaven. What is he doing right now in heaven? Well, the Bible says 
that He ever liveth to make intercession for us. So He rises from the dead to the earth, and from earth He ascends to heaven, and He takes the position of an advocate there at the the Father's right hand. What, What did Jesus tell the disciples whenever they were concerned about His death, they were troubled about His death? Let me summarize. He said it's a good thing that that's happening. <laughs> Let not your heart be troubled, but, but he said it's a good thing that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then, then the comforter won't come. I'm going to send, if I die and I go back to the Father, then I'm going to send the comforter here, but I'm going to be doing something there because of the resurrection. I'm going to be your advocate. I'm going to be at the right hand interceding on your behalf. And the Spirit of God will come, and, and, and He will be the presence of God in in your life. And so from glory, he stooped to be a substitute. He submitted to the law and to, and to sin and to death, and it, he allowed it to crush him, and then from that substitute, he then arose to a new life, and now he rises to be an advocate. And so one way he lives to God is to fulfill this, this work of an intercessor for those he died to save. But his work's not over then, is it? He's going to do some more stuff after sitting at the right hand of the Father. In the future, his life unto God continues because he's coming as judge. So from substitute to advocate to judge, John 5.22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. He's delegated that to the Son. The Son is going to be the one who will judge Christ, the resurrected Christ. But there's even more work after judging, isn't there? He's going to reign as king. 1 Timothy 5, 14 through 6. I know it's small. He says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the change. He's going to go from advocate, the right hand, So something else is going to appear until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which will bring about at the proper time, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion, kingship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the first enemy to be conquered in the king's reign is death. And that's the last enemy to be destroyed. It's conquered the cross. It'll be destroyed in the end. It's Christ who does the conquering, and it's the resurrection that gives us the proof that death has been conquered and that death will be destroyed in the end. And now this verse shows how Christ completes his full association with us. Remember about him. Christ identified with humanity in the incarnation. That's Christmas. He came as a baby in a manger. He took upon himself human flesh. Then through the circumcision, he placed himself under the Mosaic law in order to redeem those under the law. And then he took sin's penalty on himself in death as our substitute. He died in our place. And then he rose, conquering both sin and death, keeping us as a as an intercessor through through his work of advocacy until the day we are with him forever. You ever been in churches or seen churches or seen little crucifix that have Jesus still on the cross? That's theologically abhorrent. There is no more sacrifice. It's done. The cross should be empty. If you would want a representation of what Christ is doing right now, you, you would have, a, you would have a, a seat at the right hand of the throne. You may have a, 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 you know, a lawyer's bench advocating. In fact, believers are so inextricably identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Incarnation, circumcision, sins penalty, death, rising. Believers are so completely and inextricably identified with Jesus Christ that Hebrews 12, 11 says he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
That's how close you are. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's how close the union is. You say, I don't feel that close. I don't experience that. It's not about your feelings or experience. This is the theological union if you're a believer. Now, you may not feel that or experience that because you've never been in union with Christ. You've never been saved. But if you're a believer, that's how close this union is. We're re, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ in all of this. And so based on all of that, now we're exhorted to do something. And here, verse 11, is the exhortation or the command. Even so, even so, in light of everything that he just explained to us, and all of this detail, and this union with Christ, and, and what happened with him, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the exhortation that some of you have been waiting for. But we have to understand what we are to apply before we go about the work. Which is why the apostle has taken ten verses, ten and a half verses to get here. And you may have been waiting longer than you realize for this application. I don't know if you've recognized this or not. Where are we at? We're in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. I don't know if you realize this or not. We've covered a lot of ground in Romans. Did you see or pay attention as we've been walking through this letter? This is the, this is the first word of exhortation given to you or me in the entire book of Romans. This is the first time Paul's turned the book toward you and given you some kind of command to, to carry out. It's been nothing but doctrine and explanation and exposition up to this point. I mean, and no doubt there's plenty that you could have applied there to your thinking. We have. Our thinking's been changed and there's indirect implications when you saw your sin and when you looked at the gospel. But here's the first direct application from God, exhorting us to do something. And that's pretty significant, isn't it? That would mean you'd really want to pay attention to this first exhortation. It must mean it's very important. And look at what it says. Here's the command. Even so, consider. There, there's, the, there's the command. Even so, consider yourselves. Reckon yourselves. Calculate. Add up. Conclude. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. The command, even still, is related to your mind, related to your thinking. All of these words that describe this command are related to, to a conclusion that you're drawing. So back to where we started in the introduction. This surely would mean that one of the great lessons that we should be learning is that You can't be clear on how to live the Christian life if you don't understand its foundation. And until you're abundantly clear on the doctrine, you can't go to application. Or to say it another way, you must be sure what the Bible teaches, five and a half chapters clear, six and a half chapters clear, verse by verse detail clear, before you apply it. For example... You remember why Paul is even writing chapter 6? It's a misapplication of doctrine, isn't it? It's because he's been accused that if you believe his message that he's been preaching to us for six and a half chapters about the free grace of God, then you'll continue in sin. It'll just unleash the hounds and you're just going to run if it's all by grace. And Paul says, if you understand what I have been teaching for these six and a half chapters, you will do just the opposite. you'll consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it even starts with a command that has to do with your thinking and understanding. You'll get the actions. He'll get to the actions and the experience next. But here he begins with logic. And I told you I'd come back to this. This is not positive thinking. This is a rational conclusion based on theological fact. And that theological fact is backed up by God. 
As one writer said, positive thinking is if I tell myself something long enough, it, I will eventually believe it and then eventually feel it. You know, oh, I died in Jesus. Oh, I rose in Jesus. I died in Jesus. I rose in Jesus. I feel that. That's not what he's saying here at all. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying to draw a conclusion based upon what God has declared to be true. That's biblical faith. Which is why all the language about knowing and believing is to come to a conclusion that you understand what God said, and because you understand what God says, then you, you conclude it's true. You reckon it's true. Have you done that? Have you done that with what God says about Jesus and about sin? The Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and because of that sin, we'll be judged. And Jesus laid down his life for a sheep. And if you'll hear his voice, you can be one. If you hear his voice, you are one, John says. Which means you must believe that Jesus offers you salvation if you'll repent of your sin and believe. And if you do, then you'll be placed in union with Christ. And all these truths can be yours. And if you understand that, to the level that you understand that, it's the foundation for, for living and then you'll live a different way. Spurgeon said, a person who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Even the dense parts, we confess to you that we are often dense. We confess to you, Lord, that I confess to you that, that there are times I don't want to spend the effort or the energy that's necessary to, to dig into your word do the hard work that, that's there to understand. But all the fruit that's yielded whenever we do that, Lord. And I thank you for a passage like this which helps us do that, forces us to do that, so we can understand the foundation for, for our lives as, as a Christian. I am so thankful that I am so linked to Jesus Christ that he's not ashamed to call me a brother. And that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. So, Father, help us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin but alive to you and see even further what that means next week, Lord willing. We pray it all in Jesus' name.